The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Last week, uh, we began a, a series that we're going to be doing. Let's see how long it will go. Um, what we have been doing, especially if you're a visitor, new-timer to this church, historically what we do during this time when we go to God's Word We open up the scripture, the Bible, and we read it together and study. We ask God's Holy Spirit to help us understand it because he is the teacher. That is his promise. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and he enables you actually to understand scripture along with gifted people in the church who are teachers who help us all understand the word and apply it. And that's a form of worship. So that's the teaching time that we'll do now before we have communion. It's an act of worship. It's where literally we believe this is how we discern the mind of God. What does God think? Well, it's right here. I can actually know what the eternal creator God of the universe thinks. It's right here. It's in scripture. And I can't know anything of what God thinks outside of scripture. He's revealed everything he wants us to know in the Bible. Anything not in the Bible, he hasn't revealed to us, and we don't know. And he may reveal that in the future, in heaven, but he will always be the creator. He will always be omniscient, know all things, and we will always be finite creatures, but we will always have a sufficiency of revelation and God's knowledge at our disposal because he is a kind God. So right now we uh, pursue this blessed act of worship of studying God's word together, but historically what we'll do is we'll go through a book of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke together Sunday after Sunday when I'm preaching paragraph at a time as we see the ministry of Jesus and his teaching and then complemented by uh, the book of Hebrews that Pastor Derek has been teaching through as well about a paragraph at a time. It's been fruitful uh, getting that compliment. Usually during the summers, historically, what I've been doing is taking a break uh, to focus on maybe something, a little variety, exposing us to other places of scripture and practical principles we need to be aware of and implement in our life, seeking to get the full counsel of God. So that's what we're doing a little bit this summer, taking a break from uh, Matthew and Hebrews. When we do a book like that, Matthew and Hebrews, we go deep, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, sometimes word by word, kind of slow, but it's the depth of Scripture, the depth of Scripture. Uh, In this series, we're going the other way, the breadth of Scripture, a big picture, very broad, many different Scriptures we're going to look at. Today, So that's good. We need to have depth and we need to have breadth. We need to go deep and we need to go wide. Deep and wide. Deep and deep. I should write a song. <laughs> deep and what would I call it? Well, anyway, that's a different topic. I'm distracted. Um, so we're going to go wide today. Today's sermon is Taking Spiritual Inventory Part 2. We did Part 1 last week. Part 1 was Introduction, Laying the Foundation, Giving the Biblical Rationale of why we're doing what we're doing beginning today. Last week was introduction. The second part of the title today, Taking Spiritual Inventory Part 2, the emphasis on are you saved? Are you saved? Are you a Christian is what I mean. Are Are you born again? I remember when I got saved, I was a pagan pretty much. I was a religious pagan for 19 years. Got saved in college when I was 19. Youngest of 10 children in my family, and then I, once I got saved, I asked all of my family members, they were all kinds of different religions, but anyway, I I just remember asking a couple, I asked all of them, are you a Christian? And a couple of them said, "Uh, I think so. One of them said, sometimes. That was was an honest answer. That was one of my siblings, so I talked to them about, are you a Christian? Sometimes. (laughs) I was like, nope. I thank you for your honesty, uh, but there's some ambivalence there, and that's uh, you're in trouble if that's your answer, according to God's word. But at least they were willing to, you know, think about it, contemplate. Am I a Christian? Uh, some also said, I don't know. It's another honest answer, but we need to ask the question. So last week, we introduced what I'm saying is a multi-week series. Uh, with the theme, Taking Spiritual Inventory, and it's taking spiritual inventory of yourself. So, uh, as we said last week, the goal, you're not taking inventory of your spouse. You let them do that with themselves and God and his word. 
You focus on you, I will focus on me. And this is an obedience to many commands in Scripture, but one specific that we laid out last week was 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul said to the church that he founded in Corinth, that he pastored for a year and a half, and that he kept correspondence with, and he challenged them with this biblical discipline as, okay, you're professing Christians, you go to church, you meet with the saints, you go through the motions, you have the talk, do you walk the walk consistent with your talk? You need to examine yourself. You need to, and he said it two times in that one verse, 2 Corinthians 13.5. We read it last week. That's our theme verse for this series where Paul says, test yourself. He uses two different Greek words, test yourself, a deliberate examination of yourself to see if you are in the faith. And that means to see if you are a Christian, to see if you're truly born again, if you are regenerate, if you know God, if you're a child of God. If your sins have been forgiven, if you've been given eternal life, if you're going to heaven, guaranteed upon your death, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, these are all synonymous. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that's what it means. Are you in the faith? Are you truly a Christian? And that's what Paul says. You need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And then he says, examine yourself. So he uses two specific words uh, synonymously with an exhortation, a command from Almighty God telling every Christian, you need to do this, present tense, and you need to do this in a regular, ongoing basis. So as a Christian, add to your spiritual disciplines of prayer and giving and going to church and fellowship and all these things you consider as regular, ongoing Christian disciplines. If you haven't already, then add this one. Self-examination, spiritual self-examination. That's what we're doing. Some of you have never done this. Admittedly, I had some good conversations this week, some interesting ones in light of this sermon. Sincere Christians, uh, wow, never examined myself. How do you do that? Well, that's what I want to model together for us through Scripture. Today is a communion Sunday. How appropriate. First passage we're going to is... You can open up your Bible. First uh, Corinthians 11. We're going to have communion in about 40 minutes, but I'm going to prepare our hearts for communion right now by reading the communion passage from the Apostle Paul. So we just read 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, who was the pastor of the church in Corinth, uh, challenged the professing Christians there, test yourself to see if you truly are a Christian. Examine yourself. And to the same congregation of Christians earlier in the other epistle, 1 Corinthians 11, he said the same thing. He gave the same mandate. And it was an ongoing regular discipline that he said needed to be implemented at the time of communion. Every time you have communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or Eucharist, those are all synonymous. Every time you do that as a corporate body, as the church, then you need to examine yourself. Because 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul explains the purpose of communion, he says, before you take communion, the drink and the bread, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, if you're a Christian doing this, a man or a person, a professing Christian, must, it's, an, it's a command, you must examine yourself. Right there. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 13. Doki Mazzo, um, to test, to examine, to investigate for the sake of approving, for vetting, to validate the product is genuine and not a phony. So Paul says, before you take communion, make sure you examine yourself in your own heart quietly before the Lord. And in so doing, uh, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup at communion. For the, the Christian who eats and drinks... When they do communion, they eat and drink judgment on themselves if they do not judge the body or your life accurately or properly. In other words, do not participate in communion today at the end of the service if you haven't evaluated yourself properly in light of what God expects of Christians. It could be that you're not a Christian and you take communion. Do not do that. That is dangerous. You will bring the wrath of God upon your head. If you're not a Christian, do not take communion. That's what Paul means here. He's emphatic. So he uses these words, examine yourself, judge, 1 Corinthians 11. Don't take communion without examining your, yourself. Or maybe you have hidden sin in your life that you're holding on to. Maybe, you are, uh, you gotta, maybe you're committing adultery on the side and nobody knows about it. And then you take communion. Paul says, don't do that. God sees everything. 
his chastening wrath abides on you. You won't get away with it. Maybe you're pocketing money on the side through your business or whatever. Theft in secret. So Paul's very specific. Say, no, don't, don't, do, don't try to hide that. Examine yourself. No hidden secrets, no hidden sins. Very dangerous. He's not saying you need to be perfect before you take communion. That's not his point at all. It's being honest. It's all. Evaluate yourself. And if you're honest, you will realize, wow, I'm pretty wicked. I'm, I'm actually pretty sinful when I think about my thoughts and my life and my words and the way I treat people, especially people in my family that I'm supposed to love. Lord, forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin and rising from the dead that provides that forgiveness that I so need. Thank you. And then when you do that and you mean it, then you are allowed to take communion and celebrate the forgiveness of sin. And your sins are washed white as snow. So communion is meant to, for the Christian anyway, be a time of celebration. That's one of the words that Paul actually uses. So we will celebrate at the end of the service today, taking communion And we celebrate one thing, it is the glory of Jesus Christ, his perfect person, his sacrificial death, his resurrection on behalf of sinners. But my point, I just want to read 1 Corinthians 11, because Paul uh, gives us a mandate. Okay, Christians, we're going to take communion today, so we need to examine ourselves. So how appropriate that we're doing this series of taking spiritual inventory, because we're actually going to spend 40 times preparing for communion. So let's go ahead and do that. If you look at your handout there, Taking Spiritual Inventory Part 2, in the event that I finish today the sermon and I go through however many points we get through, because I don't know how many we'll get through, how long will this series go on, Pastor Cliff? Will it be a two-week series, a three-week series, a four-week series? I know some of you are asking that question. I know. The answer is I have no idea. Uh, If I was a Puritan preacher, we could do a 21-week series on this. But I'm not a Puritan preacher. But we'll see. We try to be practical and cover some good ground. But we don't want to skip any corners on this because it's so important, practical. But uh, at the end of the sermon today, if you are visiting and you would like to come uh, to the visitor center after church, about 12 o'clock out there, come by, say hi, ask questions. Uh, We have a gift for you. If you're visiting today, I'll be there if you'd like to know about the church. Maybe you have a question about the sermon. Anybody's welcome to ask me. Questions about the sermon today after I'm done, whether it's right after the service, during the week, in an email, a text message, on the phone, however you want to do it. So everyone is welcome to ask me questions about today's sermon, but my, re- my first response, I'm just going to tell you what it is to your question. It doesn't matter what your question is. My first, I'm going to ask you a question when you ask me a question, and it's going to be, did you hear my sermon last week? Did you hear part one? Now, you don't have to feel guilty, but just wanted to see, because you have to listen to part one before you can... Uh, Fully appreciate part two. They go together. Building blocks kind of thing. Lego pieces. Uh, you you got to put Lego piece number one in first. Listen to it if you didn't. Uh, we've got it posted on YouTube. And if you want to take notes, listen. And then come back. And after you've uh, listened and went through step two, part two, then I will answer your questions. That way I don't have to repeat myself. And sermon one, number one may answer your questions. It's very possible. So... Um, in light of that, can you raise your hand if you were not at this church last Sunday? I know there's a lot of you. Raise your hand. Okay, so that's a lot of folks. So uh, some of you who were not here last week have already told me I was able to see the sermon on YouTube this week. So that's good. You're caught up. Um, the rest of you, I would encourage you, if you're here today, then you also need to hear part one as we go through. You'll benefit from it. Uh, so Paul says, God requires every Christian to test themselves and examine themselves to see if they are Christians, and that's the goal of the day. That's why uh, the second part of the title of the sermon is, Are You Saved? Are You Saved? Uh, And one thing I didn't get to say last week is Paul commands that we do this, or God wants us to do this, is because it is very possible that you hear the gospel and then you think you believe and commit to it, and it turns out that you're not a Christian after all. That happened all the time with Jesus. John chapter 2, he does a miracle, he preaches, a bunch of people, it says believed, pistuo is the Greek word, believed in him, John chapter 2, believed, whole bunch of people came and believed in Jesus, and then the next phrase says, but Jesus did not believe in them. He didn't believe in their belief. Same Greek word, 
because he knew many of them had a shallow, superficial, non-effectual faith. It wasn't a true faith. It was a counterfeit faith. Really what it was is just intellectual assent. Oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. Oh, I like miracles. Oh, that's cool. I've never seen that before. He seems powerful. Oh, yeah, I like his uh, general surface message. Yeah, I believe in Yahweh. Yeah, I believe in God. Well, Satan also believes in God. So, hence the need to examine our faith to see if we're truly saved, because many people who follow Jesus, they thought they were saved, they believed they were saved, and in the end, they were not. Why? Because they were self-deceived. They were self-deceived. They thought they were truly... That's how Judas was three years with Jesus. He was an apostle. And probably for the most part, he thought he was a true follower of Jesus Christ, and then he got exposed at the end, and Jesus said he was never saved in the first place, even though he did miracles and preached and was the treasurer of the apostles and was one of the apostles. He was never saved. He was self-deceived. Very dangerous. So we need to deal with... So one of the benefits of taking spiritual inventory, examining ourselves is to make sure that we are not deceived. Because how tragic would that be? We read Matthew 7 last week. Jesus warned, at the end, uh, he said, at the end of the age, at the, end of the, at the time of judgment, at the end of the age, many, that was the word, many will stand before me, Jesus the judge, at the end of the saying, Lord, Lord. Did we not do all these religious things? And then Jesus said, I never knew you. What he's saying there, you were never saved. You thought you were saved, but you were deceived. You were self-deceived. You were blinded. And that will be true of many people. So Paul knows that. He wants to warn professing Christians. Make sure you're not deceived. Go through the test. Look at Scripture. So we're going to do that together. How do you know? And that's kind of hard. Um, There are Christians who think they're saved, but they're not. Which means they're deceived. They're either deceived or they're self-deceived. If you're self-deceived, how do you know that you're deceived? You don't. That's the dilemma. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul said to Christians, don't be deceived. The Greek text, it literally says, stop being deceived. Well, wow, how do you do that? If you're deceived, you you don't know you're deceived. You don't know what you don't know. Well, you need an objective intrusion into your life is what you need to help with the wake-up call by way of God's word And some honesty and humility on your part of welcoming that and also many times it's somebody else bringing that invasion of truth into your life to shake you up and say, hey, you need to look at God's word and look at your life and compare the two. They don't match. There's a problem. There's dissonance. Have you ever considered that maybe you're not saved? So that's what we're doing. We're trying to investigate. There are three ways to be deceived, by the way. I mean, with a church congregation of 220 people, which we have at this church, it is very likely, just in sheer percentages, we have people here who think they are Christians, and they are not. They are deceived. And they don't know they're deceived. This exercise can help by examining the scriptures and then examining our own lives. But there's three kinds of deception that you have to contend with. You can be deceived out of sheer ignorance. Ignorance, what does that mean? Not knowing. In other words, you don't, You haven't been exposed to the fullness of what God's word has to say on this issue. And your deception uh, can be alleviated or relieved by gaining more of God's truth. That's good. So your deception can be remedied. So maybe up to this point, you've been deceived in light of your faith. And then we walk through certain scriptures. Maybe you've never heard them before or explained this way. Or you never thought about it this way before. And then the light goes on. Wow, I never thought about this. This is new truth. I embrace that. I, want to be, I don't want to be deceived anymore, Lord forgive me. And then you get saved or you come out of your deception that came as a result of ignorance. So that's one way to be deceived is through ignorance, not knowing enough of God's word. A second way to be deceived is through satanic blindness. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, that Satan literally has you blind. That's a supernatural satanic blindness. It's beyond your capability and ability and willpower to deal with. It's very dangerous. The only thing that can dispel that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And truth from God's word can dispel that as well as you hear it, understand it, and then trust in Christ and plead with him. 
uh, God can set you free from satanic blindness. And the solution to that is the word of God. Truth, God's objective truth. The third kind of deception after um, ignorance and satanic blindness is the most dangerous. And that's the kind of deception that's going on in Matthew chapter 7. And that is self-deception. So you have deception through ignorance, deception through satanic blindness, and then you have self-deception. What does that mean? You're blinded by your own sin. And just gaining more information of the Bible isn't necessarily going to help. As a matter of fact, it can make things worse. What do I mean by that? Well, the Pharisees are the classic example. Did they know the Old Testament? Yes. Did they know the Word of God? Yes. Did they believe it? They thought they did. Did they believe in Yahweh? Yes. Did they believe in God? Yes. Did they believe in doctrine? Yes. So they had a massive information. They studied. They kept studying the Word. Were they lost? Yes. Were they deceived? Yes. Were they blinded? Yes. Jesus said so. They were condemned. What was their problem? They were self-deceived. Jesus is giving more and more and more truth, and they are resisting all the more. So that's self-deception. So uh, if you are deceived, you're in one of those three categories, or maybe they overlap. Pastor Cliff, have you ever seen anybody who was deceived and was a professing Christian do something like this exercise and come out of it successfully? I have, actually. In over 30 years of pastoring, and even while pastoring the last 17 years at this church, I have seen it. I've actually helped professing Christians walk through the process. I've helped members of this church over the course of those 17 years walk through this process and say, consider what you think you believe and consider the fruits of your life and then consider what Scripture says and look in the mirror. They don't match. We literally had a member here. Nobody here, so don't worry. Probably nobody you know, so sigh of relief. But we, they, they inquired uh, help from the elders to examine their own life because they professed to be Christian, grew up Christian, knew Christian doctrine, had all the answers, joined the church, became members here, and began to realize, um, wow, the things that I desire, the way I talk, where I want to spend my time, and the thoughts that, that I have and the beliefs I have and my convictions, they don't align with the Bible. And so uh, a couple elders walked through the scriptures, many weeks, months with this person, and all, we all concluded together at their initiative, they said, you know, if this is what the Bible teaches and says the profile of a Christian is, then I don't think I'm a Christian. And we said, amen. And then we pleaded with them to repent and believe, and they said, no, I understand. I understand what God requires. I understand the mandates. That's not me. That's not what I desire. I thought I did. My desires have changed. And they were released from their membership of this church. They were not disciplined out of the church. They were not labeled um, not in good standing. They were let go peaceably because they were honest with themselves, with God their creator and judge, and with the leadership of this church. And we continue to pray for that person. So that's just one example. I've seen it end in a good way, too, on more than one occasion, where same thing, a member and questioning whether they're saved, and we walk through this process, and again, weeks and months and sometimes years go by, and the light went on. Wow. thought I'd been a Christian for 30 years, and I've come to realize I don't think I really was saved. Thank you, and now they're saved. As a result of going through this, which is awesome. Praise God. And then there are others who say they're Christians and they're believers, and maybe they even go to this church. They might even be members of this church. They heard my sermon last week and said, I don't need that. Maybe they were offended by it. I don't need to do that. Too good for it. Well, that person has already failed the test. We haven't even got to the 18 points on the test, and they've already failed. They didn't even get out the gate. That reveals everything. If that's your heart and that's your attitude when being challenged by Scripture to do what God asks you to do at a very basic fundamental level of in a regular ongoing basis, evaluate your life in light of what God requires and you're not willing to do that, that says it all. Hopefully that is not the case of any of you. I assume that those of you who were here last week and you came back this week, that's not true of you. 
because you came back. Thank you for coming back. By the way, as I'm talking, I keep saying you, 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 and I'm pointing my finger at you. I realize that as I point my one finger at you, there are three pointing back at me. I understand that. So uh, I'm not picking on you. I'm, I've evaluated, I'm continuing to evaluate myself. Just because I'm a pastor here at the church and an elder and went to seminary and up teaching all the time doesn't mean I have to forego this. This is challenging. This is sobering. Delayed before God. Okay, Lord, how am I doing in this area? Whoa. Expose this if I'm blinded by this, if I'm deceived by this. Show me where I really stand. No, don't. Don't do that, God, because then that usually means uh, he brings somebody into my life to tell me where I have a weakness. And that hurts my feelings. We know how that goes, but that's how God does it, right? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and when iron hits iron, sparks fly, right? So Jesus said another, the parable in Matthew uh, 13, there's a parallel passage in uh, Luke as well, very clear. This is just basic fundamental Christianity. Jesus said, the sower went out to sow seeds. That's God. God is the sower. He went out to sow seeds. What's that? That's the gospel. And he's throwing it all over the place. And it's going on good soil. It's going on semi-good soil. It's going on um, other weedy soil. It's got all kinds of weeds over here. And then rocky soil. What is that? That's a very thin soil with bedrock underneath it about an inch, half an inch deep so that it, it grow, the roots start growing, but then they can't penetrate the rock underneath, and then their roots can't dig down deep, and then they sh- shrivel up and die. And so Jesus said that God, he gets the word out, he gives the gospel out, people hear the gospel, and there's a positive response in all four categories of people. Those are four groups of people. The four soils are four groups of people. The good soil are people who hear the gospel and they come to a point where they actually believe it, and they are truly born again and regenerate, receive eternal life, and belong to Christ forever. Then the other three categories are people who received outwardly, externally, the gospel. They say, oh, I believe in the gospel. I'm a Christian. And then maybe they join the church, and they serve in ministry, and they read their Bible, and they study the Bible, and they serve in the church, and they talk religion. And usually they think they're saved. And Jesus said, well, they're not. They are self-deceived. Three categories of people like that. Well, what's the difference? How do we distinguish between those three pseudo-self-deceived kinds of Christians and true believers? Jesus says, well, there's only one way. It's with time. Time will expose the fact they're not true Christians. Time, the circumstances of life, will take care of it. Even if they're self-deceived. The circumstances of life will reveal this over time. And that's 1 John 2. When he says that there are some people who were with us and among us and then they left us and they're no longer a part of us. They were never with us in the first place. That's 1 John 2. God exposed them. God revealed them. They used to go to church. Now they don't want to go to church. Now they don't want to be around Christians. And you're thinking, wow, I grew up with this person. I thought they were Christian uh, and they're not Christian anymore. Did they lose their salvation? No, they never had it in the first place. Uh, Another thing I wanted to say is in light of some of your with your different back, we all have different backgrounds. Some of you didn't grow up in the church at all. Uh, some of you grew up in different denominations. Whether it was Presbyterian, very conservative, charismatic, maybe a Bible church, maybe a Catholic church, Lutheran church. So we got all those backgrounds here, Presbyterians, etc. But there is a particular Protestant denomination. If you grew up in that church and you have that background, you may have been used to hearing the pastor and leaders of the church saying, Once saved, always saved. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, I'd say nothing wrong with that. That's true. But what they mean by it is they usually have a follow-up or corollary. Once saved, always saved. Don't ever let anybody challenge your faith. And don't ever let anybody tell you to challenge your faith or examine yourself. That's very popular teaching. Usually in fundamentalist circles, fundamentalist Baptist circles, and other kinds of fundamentalist churches. So I would agree with the first part. Yeah, once saved, always saved. Absolutely. But this idea that it's wrong, it's blasphemous, and whatever you do, don't let anybody ever question your faith or tell you to challenge your own faith by examining your faith. Because that's what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Here's their pastor telling them, these professing Christians, 
whom he commended in both epistles in the first chapter. I thank God for you. I thank God you embraced the gospel. I thank God you're saved. He said that already. And then he closes the epistle. By the way, examine yourself to make sure you're truly a Christian. By saying that, Paul is assuming that, well, there's probably some here who aren't believers, even though they say they are. And the reason that is, is because God is the only one that knows the heart. That's the, that's the bottom line. He's the only one. I don't know if any one of you is truly a Christian, ultimately. Only God does. Uh, here's an amazing truth. I don't even know that I'm truly a Christian in one respect because I could be self-deceived. So I need God's help, and he will help me. If I pursue that. So that's another antinomy in Scripture, an apparent contradiction. We have passages like 1 John 5, where 1 John 5, 13, John the Apostle says, I am writing these things to you, children, beloved ones, professing Christians, fellow believers. I'm writing this epistle to you so that, in order that, for the purpose of, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then in the next verse, 14, he says, that it might give you confidence. So, We're not trying to undermine anybody's assurance of their faith by doing this. Because on the one hand, Paul says, well, wait a minute, examine yourself, test yourself. You might be self-deceived and not even be saved at all, like a Judas. And on the other hand, the apostles and the New Testament teaches, but you can study Scripture, go before God, and know and have rock-solid confidence that you are saved. Well, how do those truths go side by side? Well, they do. The promise of 1 John 5.13 is only for truly born-again, regenerate Christians. You can have ultimate, supernatural, divine confidence in light of the objective Word of God and the Spirit of God who lives in you. Who One of His jobs is to let you know, you belong to me. You belong to Abba Father. So there's the, the, the deepest kind of intimate confirmation in the heart that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit it's between you and God that's what John is referring to in 1 John 5 13 you can have rock solid security and assurance of the faith but it has to be in light of God's word and a true anonymous evaluation of your own life if you're a deceived professing Christian you will lack that confidence you cannot be given that assurance Because you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, he's the one that provides that assurance. So that is all introduction. That's why I said, I don't know how long this could go on, weeks and weeks. Maybe I am a Puritan. (laughs) I like reading the Puritans, maybe that's why. Well, that catches people up to speed that weren't here last week. Here we go. So the emphasis here, I got eight, 18 points, Pastor Cliff. Yeah, I'm not getting through all of them today. I don't want to take any shortcuts, like I said. But it's a good starting checklist. These are priorities. None of these are petty, peripheral, secondary, I don't think. They all need to be taken together comprehensively. It's like uh, an orchestra. You need all the pieces in place. If you say we go through 18 points and there's one where you really struggle with, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Maybe it means, oh, there's a serious area of weakness and maturity that has been exposed and you need to keep working on that. That's fine. James said that we all stumble in many ways, right? This is not about perfection. All you legalists out there and type A personality people out there, just got to give this caveat and warning again. It's not about perfection. This is Romans 12. When you evaluate yourself, evaluate objectively in light of God's word. From all of these priorities. So let's do that. Let's look at the first one. Oh, <laughs> you might want to write at the top. It is the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. I had a professor who used to say that my first semester in seminary, 1989. Gentlemen, it is the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. And all he was saying, because we all stumble, we're all weak, we all have 
immaturity. We all have a growth curve throughout this whole life. But the trajectory, which direction is your life going? Jesus is over there. Hopefully you're going this way. If you're going this way, uh-oh, we got a problem. God is up there. Hopefully you're going this way and not that way in the patterns of your life. So it's like this. That's the Christian life. Oops. Okay. If you're doing this, going this direction, then that's your warning sign. So this is all about the direction of my life, not the perfection of my life. Number one, taking spiritual inventory of ourselves, answering the question, are we truly saved? Are we Christians? Do we belong to Christ? Are we in the family of God? Number one, do you know the gospel? Do you know the true gospel? Do you know the true gospel? The word gospel means, and you said? Good news. news. What's the good news? Jesus Christ. Do you know everything you need to know about Jesus Christ? That's all I mean. The gospel. It's a message. What is the gospel? It is a specific message with specific objective content about Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is and what he did for sinners. He's eternal God with the Father and the Son. He existed before creation. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the only Savior with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's existed for all eternity. Nobody created him. He's self-existent. He knows everything. He sees everything. He has all the attributes of deity. He didn't have a body before he was born of Mary, yet he existed for all eternity. He came down from heaven and took on a human body through the incarnation, was born as a virgin from Mary, lived for 33 years on life without sin as the Savior. Everything he said was flawless. Everything he said was perfect. He came in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He came for one purpose, and that was to die on the cross for sinners, to be their substitute, not just to be crucified and rejected by sinners and Romans and the leadership of the Jews, but primarily to absorb the wrath of Almighty God the Father while he was on the cross for six hours. He absorbed supernatural, eternal, infinite wrath of the Father that was worthy of only sinners should deserve, Jesus absorbed it all. He was the Savior. He was the Lamb of God. And because He is God, the eternal flawless one, He died in His humanness, died. He didn't die as in His deity, as the God-man. His body died. His spirit was still alive. And three days later, He raised Himself from the dead. He raised himself from the conquering death, sin, Satan, hell, forever. Ascended back into heaven 40 days later on his own initiative. Went back and embraced the Father in a resurrection, supernatural, physical body, which he still retains to this day. Does Jesus have a physical body up in heaven right now? The answer is yes. He will return in that glorious body. He will remain eternally in that body. And there's only one way to be saved. It is through Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ. He's the judge of every soul. When you die and leave this life, and your next breath is before the throne of Jesus Christ, the judge. Facing one question. What did you do with me? What did you believe about me? That's it. Did you believe the good news? Did you understand the good news? And did you embrace it and believe it? And it's, it's simply that... The good news is that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He came down here as the God-man to die on behalf of sinners. And those who repent and believe and embrace him will be saved. If they believe the gospel. So do you know the true gospel? So do you know it? You, You heard it just now. That's what I just did. I delineated the true biblical gospel. There's a lot of counterfeits out there. One of the counterfeits is when they leave stuff out. Do you need to believe in the resurrection to be saved, to be a Christian? Yeah, you do. Romans 10, 9, and 10, among other places. Do you need to repent of your sin to be saved? Yeah, you do. That's all over the Bible. Do you need to believe that Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do you need to believe that Jesus is more than a man? Yes. In other words, you need to believe that Jesus is deity. He is God. If you don't believe that about Jesus, you cannot be saved. Do you need to believe that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you need to believe that you're condemned to hell, rightfully so, before a holy God? Yes. This is all part of the gospel. Do you know this true gospel? Is this the gospel that you have heard? Romans 1.16, Paul says, The gospel, the good news that I just told you, it is the power of God. It's the only power. It's supernatural power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's it. 
There is no other power of how to be saved. It's only through the gospel. Well, how do you get it? Do you work for it? Do you earn it? No, for everyone who believes, who believes the message, who believes in Jesus with a true belief. Do you know the true gospel? That's test number one. Number two, do you believe the true gospel? In light of everything that I just said, do you believe it? It's interesting. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, he rehearses the gospel-saving message for the Corinthians, the church where he pastored. He says, oh, let me, let me remind you of the gospel. The gospel that I, when I came to this city six years ago, when all of you were just a bunch of Gentile pagan Greeks and didn't know anything except false religion, and then I gave you this new message you'd never heard before, it's called the gospel. Let me give it to you in two sentences. Actually, one sentence, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. What is the gospel? That Christ died for sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. That is the content of the gospel. Let me remind you of that. And it's that message that you believed, apparently, when I was with you in Corinth, by which also you stand and have your faith. You have stability in life as a result of believing the gospel. And then he says this little phrase, unless, of course, you believed in vain. What does that mean? Unless, of course, your faith was empty. That's the word, empty, vacuous, in vain, vanity. You thought you believed, but you didn't really. You're missing something. It was a superficial belief. So, yeah, you heard it. You said you understand it, but did you truly believe it? It wasn't just intellectual assent. That's a danger for people who like to be students. They like to study. They like to search. They like to read. They are intrigued by all the uh, concepts of the Bible. It's appealing to them. Oh, I love to study the Bible. I study the Bible all the time. Uh, and they are intrigued at a superficial level with the intellectual concepts and truisms and theology of the Bible, which is important. But if that's all there is to it, that is a vacuous faith. It can't just be an intellectual exercise. It has to engage the will, the volition, which entails your emotions in all of you that makes you. It has, it's a wholesale heart commitment of the inner man, of all that you are, not just intellectual assent. And those who uh, fall prey to sheer intellectual assent, a mental exercise, that's the problem of the Pharisees and the scribes. It was strictly intellectual. You amass all kinds of data and knowledge, and you're never truly saved. That's, and Paul warned us in the epistles and said, there are people like that all over the place, and they are always learning and never come to the knowledge of the truth. They're always learning, always asking questions. Tell me more. I am intrigued, but they never get saved. These are just elements of what Paul means when he says, unless you believed in vain. You didn't have a true belief. There's false belief and there's true belief. There's saving faith and there's demonic faith. There's saving faith. There's false pseudo-faith. John 6, 66. Jesus is out teaching publicly after over two years, feeding them food, doing miracles, healing them, and nevertheless, because of his hard message and the truth that he told, it says that many of his disciples, many of his followers, this is mind-boggling, Many of his followers or disciples withdrew from him and were not following him anymore. They bailed on Jesus. Those were the same people that showed up on the day of the trial before Pilate and shook their hand in his face. Crucify him! Same people. Many of those people probably got healed by Jesus. Ate the supernatural bread that he made for them. Do you believe the true gospel? Well, they didn't truly believe it. It was a superficial belief. Number three, do you trust only in Christ's atoning work for salvation? So, you know the gospel? Because there are people who have heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They think they understand it. They say they believe it, but then they violate point number three, and the danger of that is it could damn their soul. And that is, do you trust only in Christ's atoning work for salvation? Christ's atoning work. What do I mean by that? You trust only in Jesus himself and his work of dying on the cross and rising again from the dead for sin. That is the only thing that provides salvation or forgiveness of sin. It's all, everything Jesus did, it has nothing to do with what we do to be saved. You can only be saved by what Jesus did, not what you did. Do you 
trust only in Christ's atoning work for salvation. Another way to rephrase the question, and so that you would get a different answer, is are you trusting in something else to be saved other than Christ's death and resurrection? Are you trusting in something else to earn forgiveness of your sins other than Christ's death and his resurrection? And there are a lot in the Christian community and at Christian churches. The answer, unfortunately, for them would be yes. What are they trusting in? Well, attendance at church. If I go to church, God will like me more. If I go to church and keep going to church, then maybe God will like me more when I die. And when I die, I've uh, got to like my goodie pile that's bigger than my baddie pile. And it's based on my works and things I do, like going to church. Or if I get baptized, maybe that'll earn some forgiveness of sin. Or if I read my Bible more, maybe I'll be saved or God will like me more. Or if I pray longer, then maybe God will like me more and forgive more of my sins. Or if I take communion, maybe God will forgive some of my sins. Or if I do some of the sacraments, maybe God will forgive me some of my sins. Or if I pray to a dead saint, maybe I will be forgiven of some of my sins. And on and on it goes. That's all pseudo-religion, man-made tradition. Ineffectual, it will not save. It's a distraction. Actually, it's a deceptive uh, distraction. You can't be saved by human works. The Bible is clear about that, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. How are you saved? It is by grace. That's God's grace. His sheer goodness in light of the fact that you didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve it, but he gave us something good and blessed anyway. That's grace, the grace of God. For it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by God's grace alone that you have been uh, saved. By grace you've been saved through faith. Do I participate? Must I do something to be saved? And you said... Yes. Boy, that was really loud. Let's try that again. Must I do something to be saved? And you said? Yes. yes. You must what? Repent and believe after you understand the gospel. So Pastor Cliff isn't saying you don't do anything. You're not a passive robot. You hear the gospel. You understand the gospel. You ask questions. You wrestle with God. You're convicted. You repent of sin. You believe in God's glorious gospel. And there's a supernatural transaction that takes place invisibly in your heart. And you are saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God initiates it. You participate. You respond. I respond to his truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is, not, it is the gift of God. It's not as a result, Kephra, it is not a result of human works. If you're doing anything at all trying to earn forgiveness of God, then you are deceived. You're actually undermining the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. Tetelestai, Jesus said. Tetelestai. One Greek word. What does that mean? It is completely and forever finished. Everything that needs to be done to save sinners is being done right now with my death on the cross as I absorb the wrath of the Father, and when I breathe my last, it is done. No human being can do this. No human being can please God. Only my death pleases the Father and assuages all sin. Tetelestai. It is done. It is finished. This is where, just by sheer human nature, we stumble up. And we just want to do things to think God will like me more. You know what the converse and the opposite of that is? Is when you have a hardship or trial in your life as a Christian, and you think God's picking on you because of something bad you did, something sinful you did. I did something sinful, that's why I have a hardship in my life. I did something bad, that's why I have suffering in my life. I have something uh, sin in my life, God's punishing me, and that's why I don't get what I want. That's the... That's the, you're thinking wrong just as the person who's trusting in their salvation by good works. I earn God's forgiveness by good works, and then what you're saying here is, I earn God's chastening by my bad works. It's my works. You're the focus. That's egocentric. That is wrong. God is sovereign. Uh, Hebrews 12 is clear. Revelation is clear. Whom the Father loves, he disciplines and chastens. Some of the most godly Christians in the history of the church got more chastening than we would ever see in our lifetime. And they got chastened by God Almighty, not because of bad things they did, because he was mad. That's what the whole book of Job is about for 42 chapters. Uh, the, ch the book of Job starts out, Job was basically the godliest man on planet Earth. That's how it starts. Oh, then he should have a perfect life. Cruise control, baby. Uh, no, what you're about to see is 42 chapters of chastening from the Lord like you've never seen in your life. 
and God loved Job. And none of the chastening was a result of sinful, stupid things that God was getting back at him for. It's a very low view of God. So that's uh, 3B under 3. You can't get saved by your good works, and God doesn't react and deal with you based on your works. Or me. Well, those first three, those are all gospel-oriented. Oh, they kind of come as a package. That's a great place to stop and go to communion, isn't it? That's actually a lot of information to absorb, too. A lot of stuff. I'm going to leave it there. Let's, uh, let's go to communion now. Having prepared our hearts, really we examine probably the most important fundamental things, and that's what is the gospel? Do I understand the gospel? Do I believe in the gospel? And am I entrusting my salvation to the only legitimate means, and that's the the work that Jesus did, and I can contribute nothing to that. After going through those three tests, if at all you have any hesitation about where your status is before Almighty God, then feel free, if you don't resolve it in your heart while we're praying, to abstain from communion. That's between you and the Lord. If you feel guilty from the three things that we just went through, like I do, that's a good thing. That means you have a sensitive conscience. The Spirit's maybe trying to teach you something, prompt us all to repentance. Then during our one minute of meditation time, as you hold the bread and the cup, then in your own heart, uh, talk to the Lord quietly in your own heart. Lord, uh, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for sinners and rising again from the dead and reigning on high now is my high priest who provides ongoing forgiveness and access to the Father. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in me is who is my comforter. My comforter, my only comforter. When all else fail, when all human relationships fail and disappoint you, the Spirit is in you. He is your perfect comforter at all times. Thank you. Well, that's a good prayer to pray during communion. And we celebrate together. So I'm going to go ahead and say a little prayer, and then we'll partake in communion. Father, we do thank you for uh, our time together to worship you corporately, singing to you, to give to you, to pray to you, and also to study the word scriptures together. We pray that uh, the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, would bring clarity to passages we looked up, and also clarity to things that I may have come up short on explaining, not giving a good enough explanation. Uh, we just thank you for your ongoing teaching ministry as you prepare our hearts. We do. We celebrate. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We exalt you. We lift your name on high for your goodness as the blessed Savior and the opportunity and privilege to take communion and be reminded of that. And we look forward to your coming again when you'll reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We commit it all to you in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.